Please join me in prayer. Oh God, thank you for your word, your living word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds this day, that we may be able to hear your voice and to hear you speaking to us what you want to say. May we listen, and more importantly, may we obey your word. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 43. And I always like to invite people to open your own Bibles and to follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 109, verses 1 through 20. And we'll be using this psalm to close up our study of the psalms this summer. Listen again to God's word for us. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sin always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. 
For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true and hits the mark of your gospel, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, this might be the first and last sermon you ever hear on Psalm 109. I figured I'd get it in before Bobby got back and shut me down. But I think this psalm and ones like it are extremely important for us to cover in this series that we've had on the Psalms. Because Psalms like this one uh, can often feel like a stumbling block. When you're encouraged to read and pray the Psalms, these kinds of verses can easily seem to knock you off track. Psalms like Psalm 109, they're a particular kind of lament psalm that scholars have called uh, the imprecatory psalms which is just a fancy way of saying psalms in which the psalmist prays for judgment against someone else, often in very harsh terms. Our psalm this morning is one of the prime examples, as you can imagine. The psalm, in essence, prays for the suffering and ultimate annihilation of the wrongdoer and his family across generations past and present. Psalm 69 bears very similar sentiments, and while I won't read them now, Psalm 137 and Psalm 58 unleash some of the most graphic and gut-wrenching imagery in all of Scripture, in my book at least. Depending on who's counting, there are anywhere from eight imprecatory psalms to over 30. And the call for God to rain down judgment also sometimes pops up when you might least expect it in a psalm. For instance, for instance, uh, in the first 34 verses of Psalm 104, the psalm provides a soaring testament to the glories of creation. But then it crashes in conclusion with verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Similarly, uh, for 18 verses, Psalm 139 crafts a beautiful description of how near God is to us no matter where we are or where we go. That psalm also proclaims how each of us is fearfully, wonderfully made by God, knit together in our mother's womb. And then verse 19 hits. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God. 
and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Do you have any enemies? That term might seem to be a bit strong for many of us in our everyday, ordinary lives. Because an enemy is different than an opponent. It's different than an adversary. It's different than a rival. One might be in competition with each of those challengers, striving for the same resources or the same business or the same affection or the same prize. But an enemy, an enemy is someone or some group that's either seeking to do you harm or has successfully done you harm. Furthermore, an enemy bears malice towards you, ill will towards you, and often without cause. And that's how it's frequently described in the Lament lament Psalms. People are persecuting the psalmist, quote, without cause, meaning he did nothing to provoke or to warrant them assaulting him. In our psalm this morning, David the psalmist explicitly declares that he showed friendship and goodness to his persecutors only to receive hatred and evil in response. They were paid him evil for good, in particular by making false accusations and charges against him. Now this situation, in this case being falsely accused, but in the other psalms there are other things that happen, These situations are important to note as we wrestle with this psalm and ones like it. The context of these imprecatory psalms is that the psalmist's life, the psalmist's life, his well-being is either direly at risk or already severely wounded. Now some of us in this sanctuary or over the radio waves listening now may have experienced this kind of awful situation in which your life is direly at risk. But many, if not most of us, will not have experienced anything remotely like this. So we need to realize in these psalms, they're calling for justice in the midst of injustice. They're calling down God's judgment and swift action in the face of severe persecution. These psalms are not personal vendettas, nor are they uttered for frivolous reasons. They are full of fury. They are guttural cries. They bear resentment and pain from deep cuts and open wounds. But the prayers and the cries of these psalms are the kinds of cries that would come from situations of deep injustice. These would be the cries of the enslaved, the cries of the domestically abused, the cries of a war-torn refugee, the cries of someone who's been falsely convicted, the cries of a political prisoner, the cries of a father or a mother or a brother or a sister mourning the loss of a loved one to gang violence or to gun violence. These psalms are heavy because they are bearing and calling out unjust, awful actions that undercut people's lives that crush their flourishing as God intends. And these psalms are calling on God to act, to change these situations. We can see this clearly in places like Psalm 10, 
which laments the scheming, greedy wickedness against the poor, and it calls out arrogant praying on the weak. In this psalm, God is called upon as follows. Indeed, Lord, you note trouble and grief. The helpless commit themselves to you. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. Psalm 58 strikes a similarly protective note, describing the wicked as venomous snakes, as roaring lions. The psalm proclaims, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. In each of these cases, God is called on to protect the oppressed by smashing the wicked's metaphorical teeth and arms, the things that they use to catch, to steal, to harm, to kill. These psalms are also often calling for the same kinds of harms that the wrongdoers are inflicting on others to fall back upon them. Psalm 35 reads, Without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let ruin come on them unawares. Let the net that they hid ensnare them. Let them fall in it to their ruin. Similarly, in Psalm 9, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And in Psalm 7, see how they conceive evil and are pregnant with mischief and bring forth lies. They make a pit, digging it out, and fall into the hole that they made. Their mischief returns upon their own heads, and on their own heads their violence descends. These passages from the Psalms fall in line with an accepted norm in ancient Israel, as well as in cultures and societies throughout world history. And that norm is, of course, eye for an eye, which did not necessarily literally mean an eye for an eye, but rather that retribution, that compensation for harm, should be proportionate equal to the harm or loss that was caused. So ultimately, these psalms, these psalms that are calling for judgment, they're bearing witness, they're revealing, they're testifying to two primary things. First, they're highlighting the fallen nature of our world and our lives together while also affirming that God's righteousness and that right and wrong do exist because those who persist in the path of wickedness, of stealing, of lying, of cheating, of murdering, of abusing, will come to judgment and ultimate ruin. Any apparent prosperity that they enjoy, if it can be called that, is an illusion that will vanish underneath them in God's time. The second key thing that these psalms are revealing to us and bearing witness to us about is that, as all the psalms do, we can and we should bring all of ourselves, all of our emotions, all of our cares, all of our troubles, brutally and honestly and openly to God. As Calvin wrote in his preface to his commentary on the Psalms, quote, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. End quote. As Calvin was highlighting there, the Psalms teach us that there is no thought, no feeling, no sentiment 
that we cannot bring to God, that we cannot even shout to God in prayer. And the cries and the psalms that we're talking about this morning, they are about injustice. They are visceral cries. They are bleeding and devastated, fierce and frustrated, furious and blazing. And in them, we can see the second key thing that we need to gain from them, that God can handle our anger. And our anger is best unleashed to God in prayer. It is key to note as well that these psalms point out the injustices and call for God's judgment, but they don't claim commission for the psalmist to go carry out that judgment himself. So in these psalms, we see a lesson, even for those of us who are not facing such dire circumstances, to bring, again, our full selves, all of our cares, all of our wounds, all of our vulnerabilities before God. To bring our honest selves again and again to God. And to see what happens then, to see what word, what revelation, what breath of life, what direction, what the Spirit has in store for us when we pray openly, honestly, viscerally. Following the witness of the Psalms, we can pray to God about our wounds. We can pray to God about our anger. We can pour it out in prayer how others have harmed or may have harmed or threatened to harm us. And that is perhaps the best place to take those feelings, that anger, far better than what has become the norm for many of taking that anger to Facebook, to email, to text messages. Twitter. And while prayer may not be the only thing one does or needs to do in these circumstances, it is, as always, those prayers are the consummate partner, preparer, and perfecter of any additional action we might undertake in these circumstances. So there are things that we can learn from these psalms as hard as they are in themselves. They are calling out injustice. They are opening up to us the reality that we can bring all of ourselves, all of our anger to God in prayer. And yet, while these are true and good revelations and witnesses from these psalms for us to appreciate and for us to take to heart, we need to press deeper and lean into these psalms more to read them as well in light of Christ. Our God incarnate come to earth to bear and conquer the sinful injustice that we inflict upon one another, the sins that we inflict against God. And of note, when we consider these psalms in light of our reading from Matthew that Pastor Joy read, that passage comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as you heard, In it, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Now, this command can seem, if nothing else, to stand in a a dynamic tension with the imprecatory psalms. But we should note right away that Jesus' call to love our enemies courses throughout the Old Testament. The call to love our enemies courses throughout the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, We should realize that the phrase, love your neighbors, that's straight from the Old Testament, straight from Leviticus Leviticus 19, which reads, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any among your people, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that second part, uh, you've heard that it was said, hate your enemies. We need to note that that's not in scripture. 
that was just presumably part of the cultural air in which Jesus was moving. There's no command to hate your enemies in Scripture. There's hatred and anger for sin. There's even hatred and anger towards sinful qualities that pervade people's lives. But that is hatred and anger that's akin to the anger a parent would feel at a child for doing things that are harmful for the child or for others. That is an anger rooted in love for the child. That anger and hatred towards sin is akin to the anger a community member might feel against anyone, a governing authority, an employer, a neighbor, a stranger who is causing harm to the community. That is anger that is again rooted in love for the well-being of others. There are certainly times I think we could all say in which anger is the right response, is what is called for, even though anger can be an unwieldy emotion. And yet, even with the anger at sin, the just, righteous anger at sin in Scripture, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where people are called to act for the well-being of their enemies. For instance, Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5 reads, When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, you must help to set it free. Likewise, in Proverbs 25, If your enemies are hungry... Give them bread to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. It continues, For you will heap coals of fire on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. The common interpretation of that passage is that the coals of fire are the metaphorical shame and the potential pull to repentance that the person harming you, your enemy, would feel in being treated well and hospitably by somebody who they had treated poorly and in us inhospitably. The call from Christ and from Scripture is for those who have been harmed not to seek the harm of one's persecutors, but rather to act in ways that might bring them to repentance. To love them in the sense that you are seeking their well-being, which is found in them turning from the ways of persecution. And love here, it's about actions, it's about intentions, it's not necessarily warm and fuzzy feelings towards your persecutor. It's also about working to see those who harm you from the perspective of God, as creatures made in the image of God, as creatures who, like you and like me, have their greatest purpose and fulfillment in the love of God and neighbor, but as creatures who also, like you and me, though perhaps in really egregiously harmful ways, have gone astray, have fallen in love with an idol, whether it's praise or possessions or political ideology or any good aspect of God's good creation, adored and clung to as an ultimate good. People who have gone astray and are falling short of the love of God and neighbor. Respect for them, love for them as a person made in God's image It doesn't mean condoning their behavior. It doesn't mean refraining from praying and or otherwise acting to stop them from harming you and others. It does mean that you want their well-being, which is again at root found in a turning from sin for them. 
a turning towards the love of God and neighbor. If they are lying, it is a repentant turn to honesty. If they are physically harming others, it is a repentant turn towards healing and caring for others. If they are caught in stealing or hoarding, it is a return towards generosity. If they are arrogantly lording over others, it is a turn towards humility. Each case, of course, would also entail compensation for harms done. But ultimately, in loving your enemies, you're calling them, beckoning them, praying for them to be rooted in the love of God and neighbor so they may bear fruits of the Spirit in abundance. Like the sun and the rain and the goodness of God that is open and pours forth on all of us, no matter the lengths to which we have strayed, the love of our enemies is calling us to call them to repentance, call them to come back. So we see as we read these psalms, as we read them in light of Christ, that the way in which we live into the image of God most fully is not only by demanding justice, demanding protection for the weak and accountability for those who abuse others. That is a crucial component. But we image God most fully by also imaging the steadfast love that God has for every person, every one God fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter what. This is a love that always pours forth and looks out in earnest anticipation for everyone to turn from sin, to worship the Lord with gladness, to love their neighbors as they love themselves. And we are called to that foremost because that is precisely what God did for us. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the God's wrath through him? And Paul goes on later in the letter to the Romans to describe what that looks like, living into the salvation that we have in Christ. And he writes as follows. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, may we live into this call for genuine love. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.